Well, we are in the midst of a study on the biblical family that we began a few weeks ago. Uh, last week, I began an exposition of just this singular verse, Ephesians 5:23, and uh, focused particularly on the meaning of the word head, which really is just a, a metaphor for leader. Um, and we noticed there also that the distinction between the position of head or leader in the home and the skill or the ability to lead well. Uh, just because a person is given the responsibility of leadership does not automatically mean that they're going to be good at that leadership. And so um, we, we also began to examine, okay, what does good leadership, or better yet, what does biblical leadership look like? Because as Christians, we're not just interested in how to be good leaders. We want to be biblical leaders. We want to lead according to God's word, how God defines good leadership. And so last week, at about towards the end of the message, I introduced the first point of what the Bible emphasizes is good biblical leadership, and that's that good leaders accept responsibility. And that was the first of uh, six points. Uh, the other five points we're going to look at this morning, uh, beginning with uh, biblical leaders provide. So biblical leaders accept responsibility. They seek to provide, to protect, to take initiative. They stay committed, and they also lead with humility as they serve their families. So let's look again at that second principle, biblical leaders provide. When God placed Adam in the garden, uh, he did so giving him the responsibility to both guard it and keep it, um, as well as to work in it. In uh, Genesis 3, after... Um, Sin entered into the world. Adam found that the work got a lot more difficult. It was accompanied with pain and grief and difficulty. Um, but even so, I bring that up because the, the, the pattern of men working is actually a creation ordinance. It finds its beginnings not after the fall, but actually prior to the fall. And the point therein is that God created men not just to work, but to worship in their work. Work is an expression of worship. It was that way before the fall, likewise after the fall. And so therefore, a refusal to work is really a refusal to worship. We have to keep in mind what God says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that as Christians worship not primarily by offering up uh, sacrifices or giving money or even serving in ministries. We worship primarily by dying to ourselves. Right? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? We worship by offering ourselves up, and, and not just in our singing, but we worship by our serving. Particularly here we see in obedience to God to work. Consider also Paul's instruction in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I invite you to turn there. Paul gives some extensive instruction on this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. He says, Now I command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. No such persons, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Now there may be seasons of unemployment because a person gets laid off or uh, because they're working as a full-time student and they're working towards a degree so they can better provide for their family in the future. Or there may be seasons where a person becomes physically incapacitated. They actually aren't able to work because of some sort of injury or illness. But even so, even during such times, leaders should seek to do whatever they can to provide for their families, to do whatever they can, um, because that's their responsibility. In fact, uh, one of the most severe indictments made upon professing believers is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so, again, this principle does not teach that it's wrong for a wife to work outside the home or that they can't earn more money than their husbands. What it means is simply that this is not a woman's responsibility. It's her husband's responsibility to provide. It's a responsibility God has given to the man. Uh, wives have other responsibilities that God has given to them um, that they need to prioritize higher than earning a paycheck. In his book, Reforming Marriage, Douglas Wilson makes this insightful observation. He says, with the rhetoric of equality, women have been duped into working outside the home. They have taken a second job and then have been unable to get their husbands to share the load of the first one. She still does the laundry, the cooking, and everything else. And of course, the selfish male is the main beneficiary in all this liberation of women. He gets two paychecks. For the price of one. So biblical leaders need to provide for their families. Thirdly, biblical leaders also should protect their families. Again, this principle of leadership is also established in the garden. Remember that besides working in the garden, God also commanded Adam to guard the garden in Genesis 2.15. Which, of course, begs the question... What's he to guard it from? From invaders? From thieves that might break in and steal fruit? Was he to to guard it from violent men? What was he to guard it from? Sin. God put Adam in the garden to guard it from sin, which of course he failed in. But likewise, the same term guard is also used to describe, again, the the Levitical priests, the Levites, who would stand in front of the tabernacle to guard it from defilement. They weren't guarding it from enemies. They were guarding it from sin. 
Likewise, the primary thing leaders in the home should be concerned about protecting their families from is not enemies. It's sin. Jesus says this in Luke 17.3. Guard yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Guard yourselves from sin is the point. Luke 21, 34, he says, again, guard yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Similarly, Paul calls elders in Acts 20 to guard yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. When he says guard yourselves, he isn't saying Make sure that you come armed when you go to church, elders. He's saying guard your flock from sin through praying for them, through teaching them, through exhorting them, through warning them in the word. Now, many men pride themselves in having an arsenal in their closet or because they have a black belt in martial arts. And that's going to enable them to protect against a possible intruder into their home. And they're they're well guarded against the possible yet unlikely event that they might have an intruder into their home. They're guarded against that, and yet they pay little attention to the regular flow of ungodly material that comes into their home through media, through television, through internet. They're prepared for the unlikely uh, threat to their family, and yet they just, they're aloof to the continual threat that flows into their home through Ungodly media. And this is like a country that would be guarding itself from a nuclear threat. And yet, because of open borders, they allow known terrorists to flood into their country. I mean, imagine if Israel's focus right now was just guarding themselves from a nuclear threat. And yet they paid no attention to whoever from whatever country, Hamas or Hezbollah, wanted to come in and and, uh, sit within their borders. Of course they're not going to do that because they realize the threat is not just nuclear. It's individuals that would want to harm their country. And likewise, men is, is guarding our family. It doesn't, we, it doesn't mean we can't be pro, protect our family from the possibility of a thief or intruder, but we should be far more concerned. In fact, the responsibility we're given to protect isn't so much physical protection as is spiritual protection. Now, we're failing if our families aren't being spiritually protected, even if they're physically protected from evil people. A good leader doesn't just shelter others from threats, though, but they help those he's responsible for to see those threats. Pointing out the dangers that those threats pose and then giving advice to know how to combat those threats. And I say this, you know, it doesn't mean that you, you, you have to cut off the Internet because there's threats on the Internet. Instead, I think it's better if um, you just effectively shepherd your family to use it wisely. Provide some biblical principles regarding how you use your time. Find ways to mitigate against the threats of ungodly content. And then shepherd your family as they encounter lies to think through, okay, how are those lies um, wrong? What's, what's the lie behind the lie? 
It's important to let them see that you're not trying to be controlling, but you're trying to protect them. I think all too often men, even actually out of fear, they, they really are just being controlling rather than protecting. And so let them see that the rules you provide are rational and good. They're not arbitrary. They're not self-serving. They're, they're in the best interests of the people you're seeking to care about. And another way that men can protect their families is through prayer. Show them how to do what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. You know this verse well. He says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, note, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And one of the ways we can guard the hearts and minds of our wives and our kids is by praying with them, teaching them to pray, and praying for them. Biblical leaders also protect by providing instruction. Turning your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs is a great book as far as how to lead a family in the Word. Good practical wisdom, of course, is lo- the book is loaded with it. But know what Solomon says to his son in Proverbs 4, 1-6 through 6, about the benefits of providing biblical instruction and how it will protect his, his son. Hero sons, a father's instruction... And be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. It's the other word, the word guard there. Love her and she will guard you. Again, a synonym of guard. She will keep you, she will guard you. We guard our kids by giving them instruction based in the word. A thorough examination of the Bible shows again that the primary thought threat that that biblical leaders need to guard others against isn't violence. It's not theft. It's sin. And so it would be worthwhile just to ask yourself, how well is my family being protected from sin? Are there ways that sin is making inroads in my family? And what am I doing to cut off its influence? We primarily do this, of course, in instruction in the word, in prayer, and by our own example. So biblical leaders need to protect, thirdly, Or fourthly, they take initiative. That is, they're active in their leadership versus passive. And and the primary pattern we see for this in the Bible is actually in God himself. One of the most beautiful pictures of leadership in Scripture is what we read in our Scripture reading this morning, that of the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Because he's my shepherd, I will not want That means I don't need anything because God provides it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Not I will make myself lie down. He makes me. 
He initiates. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see that? He's initiating. He's taking care of the sheep. He's not just waiting for the sheep to do something and then when they act, he will come and respond. No, he takes initiative to care for them. Just like Christ also took the initiative in saving us. Romans 5, 6-8, through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We couldn't do anything. We were weak. In fact, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And therefore, He took the initiative. He led. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He wasn't, he wasn't waiting for us to just get our act together. To show, show him some respect. To just to start following some of his rules. No, even while we were dead, he took the initiative. He did what he needed to, to lead us to salvation. To bring us to salvation. He came to us first. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... It's the kind of leaders we're supposed to be, man. Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with he, which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So what does such leadership, such active leadership, look like in our homes? We see how, what it looks like in our salvation. What's it look like in our homes? Well, I think it begins with just communicating to those in your family your expectations. Set rules and give explanation for why you have those rules. Why they're for your family's benefit. And you give the rules not like a ruthless dictator just trying to control everything that happens, but coming alongside each member, helping them to achieve the goals of the family. In fact, it's wise even to look at every aspect of your family and, and provide goals, vision, financial goals, spiritual goals, practicals, even on a daily or even weekly basis. What is it that you're trying to achieve? Let them know what drives you, what you prioritize, what you value. And help them to see that that's rooted in Scripture, not just personal preference. Because if they see that you're a man led by the Word of God and wanting to honor God, they will want to follow suit. Because they'll see you're not self-serving. What, what causes people to resist following a leader is they see the pride in the leader. They feel like they're taking advantage of. That they're being used. And so show them this isn't about you. This is about wanting to honor your king. That you yourself are the chief servant within the home. And so come alongside them. Training them. Don't just criticize them. Don't just condemn them. Don't just point out how they're failing again and again and again. But ask, how, how can I help you? I know this is hard. I love the example of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Please turn your Bibles there. He gives a good, just thorough explanation of what such biblical leadership looks like. And of course, the context here is in ministry, but he's actually, in order to clarify his leadership in ministry, he's actually using an analogy from the home. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you, 
as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you, unbelie- toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Isn't that amazing? He's drawing on the home to show his care for the people. He's arguing from, in a sense, the the greater to the lesser. And if, if, if pastors should look to the home as a guide for what good leadership should look like, how much more men and, and even mothers should we be leading in such a way? Tenderness, encouraging, hard work. But in order for such instruction to be truly biblical, again, it presupposes that, that these men, these leaders, are familiar with Scripture. They, they, we should be like Spurgeon described John Bunyan. And when he said, prick him anywhere, and you'll find that his blood is bibbling. In other words, the, the Bible's just flowing through his blood. He's constantly thinking about Scripture. And if you were part of the class on Pilgrim's Progress, and you were reading Pilgrim's Progress, you just see how it, 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 he's just flooded with Scripture. He's thinking about every situation in light of God's Word. As Solomon instructed his son in Proverbs 2, he said, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it with, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see the, the activeness in it. He says, son, if you take initiative, if you pursue wisdom, you pursue truth, then you will be guarded and be able to guard others. So the point is that, that, that when a leader wants to know what to do, what would be in line with God's will, they seek it out in the scriptures. They're not passive. They don't just wait to hear how the Bible might, be, might address this issue. They don't just wait till Sunday. They don't just wait for a sermon series. When they come up across a problem or a challenge in their life, they, they seek counsel or they, they go to the Word or they scour Scripture to find out what does the Bible say about this issue, this need, this challenge. So they don't wait to be told what to do. They take responsibility to find out what they should be doing. And I think many men just don't know what God's will is for a situation. They, just, they don't know what God's Word says about uh, an issue. And maybe there's many things that the Scripture doesn't explicitly talk about. They're not sure how to get their family unstuck from a pattern of sin. And so they don't, just, they don't do anything. They just feel sorry for themselves, or they become bitter, or they complain. But a biblical leader takes action to find out what he should be doing. They... they even if they can't find it in the Word of God, they, they seek counsel from other people they respect. Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But 
In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. When you have a lot of people you can call on and ask for help, there's safety. There's very few decisions, I don't think of any. I can't think of any decision that I would make for our church that I didn't ask, not just the elders and the deacons, but other men within this church for. Even though, even when I was the only elder of this church, every decision I wanted to, to sift through the wisdom of, the, of other men. Even seeking counsel for my wife and my kids. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 19.20 Men, we need to be constantly asking for help. There's this, this notion in, in American masculinity that if you ask for directions, you're weak or stupid. If you ask for help on a home project, you know, that's just absolute folly. A godly man seeks counsel, seeks assistance. To be active in leadership also means that the leader has a goal in mind, what they're moving towards, and they're regularly evaluating their progress. And of course, with those goals, we need to be thinking through, okay, how are these goals lined up with what the Word of God says? Often we can just create goals because of our own selfish ambition. But our goals really should be in line with God's Word. And so that if anybody in our family says, well, why are we focusing our money and attention on this goal? You know, a godly man should be able to say, well, because of these scriptures, because this is what, the God, this is what God thinks is a priority. Therefore, it's a priority for me. Fifthly, biblical leaders stay committed. They follow the example of Joshua who famously declared, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Such resolve... To be committed to following God isn't, isn't rooted in a personality. It's not just being stubborn. Cabeza dura, right? Yeah, Julio knows. Amen, brother? It's not. It's rooted in, in the fear of the Lord. But often we think you know, commitment is just a personality trait. But, for, but, but biblical commitment is rooted in fearing God, as we saw in, saw in Psalm 128. If you want a, 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 a family that's fruitful, it's, it finds its roots in the fear of the Lord. And because biblical resolve is not set on following our own wills, but it's rather a commitment to follow Christ and to lead our families towards Christ-likeness. It's, it's something that that won't wither when we face opposition. Because biblical leaders are committed to Christ and His goals, which means we're not people pleasers. Right? Doing what our boss wants, first and foremost, or what our wife wants, what our kids want, what our parents want. We may consider those things, but honoring Christ and fearing God is our ultimate priority. And commitment is critical to good leadership. Because if you're not committed, you're going to be led by whatever's distracting you from those goals. 
if, you're, if, you, if you can't stay committed on a goal that you set, on a, particularly a biblical goal, then whatever's distracting you is ultimately what's leading you. If you're being distracted by work, work is really what's leading you, not Christ. If you're being distracted by your kids, that's what's leading your home. If you're being distracted by the television, your cell phone, that's what's leading you. Right? We, in order to, to have a home that thrives, you have to stay committed to your biblical principles. Or else you're, def- you're abdicating your leadership to whatever's distracting you. And, and you know how that worked for Adam in the garden. And just consider the resolve and commitment that Christ had to complete the mission that God gave him. Remember when Peter, out of love for his Lord, you know, tried to get Christ to not go to Jerusalem where he'd be crucified. Remember how Jesus responded to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. It doesn't come from my father. That comes from Satan. Right? Even though he knew Peter was saying this out of love and care for him, it was so misguided, he had to just call it what it was. Call a spade a spade. That's why Isaiah says of Christ that he set his face like flint in Isaiah 57. Right? All too often, we're just pushovers for Satan. Like He can get us to crumble at the, the least bit of opposition. Like, in our zeal, like we watch a movie or we hear a song or we hear a, stir, a stirring sermon and we're ready. We make these great commitments to follow God. And then we get a little bit of opposition. We're like, well, it must not be God's will anymore because it's hard. We fail to confront sin because the last time we confronted sin in our family, it just it made things awkward in the home. We don't like living with awkwardness and tension. Men give up leading in family worship because the kids were just too distracted the first few times they tried. So, well, we'll just let the kids do what they want. We're not going to lead them. We'll let the kids lead. Well, they give up trying to get their family to church on time. Or give up trying to pray with their wives because, again, it was too awkward. Or they don't even... They give up trying to pray for their wives or for their kids because they've been praying for... Months, maybe, and yet they still haven't seen the changes they've been praying for. And Jesus told us to be prepared for that kind of slow growth. That's why he gave the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, right? The point of which is we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then will give up disciplining their children because the last time they disciplined them, the, the, the kids were sad or they got angry. We don't like it when people are angry at us or sad. And so we just stop leading according to Scripture. But biblical leaders don't give up in the face of opposition. Right? We, ha- we have to be willing to accept people getting angry at us for leading. Like People didn't always like what Christ had to say. They didn't always like what the apostles had to say. And we need to expect that. It's, if, if we... If we're leading according to God's word, we're not always going to be liked or appreciated. That's why the author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which 
cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Brothers and sisters, this is hard. Right? The reason we need endurance is because it's difficult to be a Christian. And if it's difficult to be a Christian, it's exponentially more difficult to lead as a Christian. Because not only are we trying to just get ourselves across the finish line, we're responsible to get everybody in our family across the finish line as well. And, and some may have broken legs. Some might be afraid of running in front of a cloud, crowd. Some might have asthma. And we don't need to just be thinking about getting ourselves, but we're responsible to make sure everybody else we're responsible for also gets across. It's incredibly hard. And yet that's, what we've, that's the task, that's the responsibility we've been given. But it's important also to recognize that having resolve doesn't mean that when we realize we've made a bad decision, that we stick with it. Turning around because you realize you've made a wrong turn somewhere doesn't mean you lack resolve. It means you actually possess wisdom. You're willing to make a change at some point. Right? We don't want to be like Jephthah in the book of Judges who made a vow that if God gave him victory in a battle, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house. God gave him victory. He came home and the first thing that came out of his house was his only daughter. And he kept that commitment and actually sacrificed her. And people wonder, well, what should he have done? He made a vow to God. Well, he should have been honest about his foolishness. And if anything, he should have offered to take her place because it was his folly that made the vow instead of sacrificing her. It was his bad decision, not his daughter's. She did nothing. A biblical leader, if they realize they made a wrong turn, they acknowledge it. They're willing to pay the price for it. But then they turn a direction they know is what would be pleasing to the Lord. A committed leader isn't committed to his decisions as much as he's committed to honoring God. Right? Biblical commitment is not just about staying committed to whatever we've decided but it's being committed to God's will. So if we realize that our decision isn't in line with God's will, then we change. And we repent. We do what's going to be pleasing to us. And that, that's not, that's not, um, you, that's not letting, that, that, that is still letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Because you're committed to God. It's not vacillation. It's commitment. Again, the com- because you're committed to God, not just whatever decision that you've made. Sixthly, biblical leaders humbly serve. M- many people falsely assume that those who are put in a position of leadership do so because they desire the privileges of leadership. Or they're, they're, they're power hungry. They want prestige. They want popularity or praise. But in the Bible, leadership is all about caring for people. And you see this from beginning to end in Scripture. It's a calling to be responsible for others and to care for them. It's not about self-exaltation. It's about love and care. As Paul instructs the Philippians, 
chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. This is how you're supposed to think. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see how Christ led here? This is the leader of all creation. And yet, his leadership is displayed by becoming the lowest of the low of slaves. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He cared, he led by caring for his people to the point of death. That's biblical leadership. And notice how it's tied to service. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. In fact, this corresponds to what Jesus instructed James and John and the rest of his apostles in Mark 10, 41. If you flip over there, a great text on leadership in Scripture. Mark 10, 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know... That those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your slave. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's biblical leadership, brothers. And this means that if everybody in the house is doing chores, the leader should not be lounging on the couch watching television. If a wife's doing laundry, the husband shouldn't be playing video games. Even he says, well, I'm playing with the kids. Somebody else is serving, you should be serving. Unless it's been prearranged that that's the plan. In the Bible, the leader is the servant, not the other way around. And Jesus made this clear on the last night with his disciples. When he got up from the table, grabbed a towel, began to wash their feet. And then he asked them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus tells us what leadership looks like in the home. I have given you an example. Many Christian men assume that they're they're, they're fulfilling their God-given responsibilities in the home if they're simply providing and protecting. 
They own a gun. They have a security system. And they're bringing home a paycheck. Therefore, they're doing their job. They can rest. But leadership is a round-the-clock job. The need to meet the needs of your family never expires. It's the middle of the night. It's on the weekends. You need to serve your family during the football games. During the middle of the day at times. When they're sick. It's a 24-hour responsibility. Because the needs don't cease. But because a biblical leader cares about the interests of others, he's a leader that also listens to others. Right? They, they seek counsel from others, but especially from those that they're seeking to serve. And they're aware of their propensity to self-deception. That they to themselves make errors. They recognize the truth of Proverbs 30, verse 12. Those who are clean in their own eyes... There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Right? Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Right? If that's true, then we have to recognize we could be deceived in a lot of our choices. So you've got to seek counsel, look for help, look for advice, especially when you feel stuck. The Apostle Peter specifically applies this principle to husbands. When he tells them to live with your wives in an understanding way. Right? The assumption is you understand them. Which means you've got to talk to them. You've got to understand what are they going through. How are they thinking. What's, what's burdening them. You, you can't read their minds so you have to ask questions. You have to seek their counsel. So you know how to care for them. But it also means that the humble leader admits when they're wrong. When they recognize they have made a bad decision, they're willing to acknowledge it. The Apostle James tells us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? This, this means a biblical leader is willing to acknowledge and confess that he hasn't been a good or even a biblical leader. That he's been selfish a lot of time or aloof or lazy. He's willing to admit that he hasn't exercised leadership in a manner that pleases the Lord. It's a, it's a hard and yet a high task to be a biblical leader. And nobody this side of heaven is going to fulfill the responsibility perfectly. We need to just recognize it's difficult. And so it's important that when we fail, we acknowledge it. But it's also important, I think, on this note, that, that wives recognize the weight of responsibility and how hard it is to actually be what God has called husbands to be. And so, wives, your husbands need your help, not your criticism. Don't seek to undermine their authority in your home, but rather seek to strengthen it. God has given them that authority to protect you. It's for your interests. It's not there to harm you. It's there to keep you safe. Undermining your husband's authority would be like sabotaging your home's security system. It would be like removing the antivirus software from your computer. 
says, you don't want to do that. It's there to, to protect you. It's only going to heighten your vulnerability if you undermine his leadership. And so instead, pray for him. Encourage him. If necessary, respectfully reprove him when you, when, you, when you see that he's not doing things in a manner that pleases the Lord. But seek to support him. Because such, such support, such encouragement, it's going to mean the world to your husband. Because this is a very difficult task that they've been called to. This past week, we celebrated the impact of one of the greatest leaders of all of Christian history, namely Martin Luther. It was on 506 years ago that he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door, beginning the Reformation. What many people don't know is that really one of the things that kept Martin Luther going through the, the years of difficulties, even after he made that, in, that initial stand uh, in Wittenberg and then later at the um, trial of Worms, what kept him going wasn't just his own strength of will, but his wife's encouragement. Katie's support helped him to bear the challenge, not only of leading his home, but really leading the whole Christian world at that time. In fact, her devotion and respect for him is clearly seen in a letter that she wrote a few weeks after his death. She said, Who would not be sad and afflicted at the loss of such a precious man as my dear Lord was? Speaking of Luther, he did great things, not just for a city or a single land, but for the whole world. Therefore, I'm truly so deeply grieved that I cannot tell a single person of the great pain that's in my heart. And I do not understand how I can cope with this. I cannot eat or drink, nor can I sleep. And if I had a principality or an empire and lost it, it would not have been as painful as it is now that the dear Lord God has taken from me, this precious and beloved man, and not from me alone, but from the whole world. Nothing could have been as painful as losing her husband to Katie. Right? Leadership was hard for Luther. Just as it's hard for us, it's hard for anybody. Anybody who's trying to lead their family biblically. And again, the point is, none of us are going to lead perfectly. There's always going to be some way that we could continue to grow. And I say that just to to encourage you men, take heart. It's hard, but keep pressing on. Stay committed and trust that God is going to help you as you seek to improve in every aspect of your leadership in your home. God's going to give you the grace as you take steps of faithfulness. And over time, you will see that grace continue to extend itself, not only in your own heart, but in the lives of your family members. Trust in Him. Stay committed. Stay faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we we know it's just obvious just how challenging it is for us to be obedient to your calls to be a Christian leader. And so we pray that you would give us grace. I pray that you would solidify these principles in our minds and our hearts so that we would know what we need to be doing within our homes and then give, give us practical application. Help us to see where we need to, to, to veer in a different direction, where we need to repent, 
where we need to change, where we need to start taking initiative in ways that we've been aloof to. Lord, give each of the men in this this church clarity. And I pray that you would inspire their wives with love and with mercy and with grace to give them the support that they need so that all of us would have biblical families within this church. We pray this in Christ's name.